We're going to read together from uh, verse 4 of James chapter 4. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which simply says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell within us. But He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. So Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for this portion, which is your word. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you. We want to honor your word. We want to honor you in your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the fullness of the word that came to dwell with us. You, and uh, we celebrate that this morning. I just pray right now, Lord, that you'd help me as I preach, that I might preach what is your heart for this church. And Lord, I pray that everyone would be encouraged this morning because of your love in us, because of your Holy Spirit in us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, for those of you that have, uh, are visiting this morning, we've been looking at James chapter 4, which uh, is really three themes that James discusses throughout the book of James, and this chapter 4 is discussing the third of those themes. Uh, the first theme that he talks about is, he talks about true spirituality, he says, he describes, he says, this is what true spirituality is, and he says, the first thing that true, being truly spiritual is, is to learning to control your tongue and how you speak to other people, and he explores that in chapter 1 and chapter 3, and then secondly, he says, true spirituality is about showing compassion towards the poor, and the lost and the broken, and he also discusses that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then thirdly, he says, True spirituality is keeping yourself unstained from the world. And that's really what he's exploring in chapter 4. And so this is the culmination, uh, his, con- his conclusion of what he's already been talking about in the first three verses. And um, I spoke about how James has been talking to these people as his dear friends. And he, he says that a number of times in chapter 1, chapter 2, and 3. He, he, he calls them my dear friends. He loves these people, all right? And so he's got a real heart and concern for them. But what he's saying here is that he's, he's trying to make them aware that they're not really aware of their own spiritual state. That's what he's trying to point to, saying, guys, you actually don't see where you really are at, and I love you as friends, but actually he calls them adulterers. <laughs> and there's no nice way of saying that. He just says, my dear friends, you are all in adultery, every one of you. And uh, why do I say that? Well, we looked in the last couple of weeks, and if you weren't here in the last couple of weeks, please catch up, because what I'm trying to say uh, today, it really comes out of those two messages that I preached over the last couple of weeks, and there is a context for what I'm going to say this morning. So please catch up on podcast if, you, if there's some things that you don't understand. We saw that they were fighting each other. We saw that they were frustrated. We saw that they were prayerless, that they were not getting what they wanted from God. And those were the outward signs that they already had a problem. And the the problem was that they were being outwardly moral, they were doing the right thing, they were coming to church, they were worshipping with the saints, whatever, but inwardly there was a coldness in their hearts, and so they weren't actually responding to the higher call that God had for them, which was under the grace of God to love their neighbors as themselves. That's the high call of the gospel. 
And so somewhere along the line, whatever it was, religion or pressure or whatever it was, worldly things had begun to harden their hearts and the coldness of their hearts had begun to set in. And James is saying that actually is the real problem. They desperately needed a move of God in their lives again. They desperately needed the refreshing of God to come and transform their hearts. And so that's the context of what I'd like to speak to this morning, into this morning. And I've simply called this message an affair of the heart. An affair of the heart. And so James uses in chapter 4, he uses a very simple illustration from marriage. He simply says, My beloved friends, my dear friends, you are an adulterous people. There's an affair that's going on in your heart. And so what is adultery? It's simply when you're married and you're in a love relationship with somebody, you choose to take that love relationship that is reserved exclusively for your wife and you choose to share that with somebody else who's not your wife and someone who perhaps is married. That's what adultery is. That's the definition of adultery. And so here James is saying, you are involved as a people in spiritual adultery. You have had a love relationship with God. You have trusted Him. You, you loved Him. You've been grateful to Him for saving you. You, you are grateful, have been grateful to Him for changing your life and radically uh, changing your future, taking your history and washing it away and giving you a whole new future. He says that's what you've experienced. That's what you've enjoyed. God in turn has answered your prayers. He's walked closely with you. And you've been so aware of His love for you. But now you are looking for love somewhere else. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. He says, My brothers, again, look how he addresses them. My dear friends, my brothers, my, the ecclesia, the called out ones. My dear friends, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another who has been raised from the dead. When we are saved, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. He is the highest affection of a house. And James is pointing this out to his friends. He's saying, you were working out your love relationship with God, and now the one that saved you, the one that called you, uh, but now you are working it out, this love relationship, you are working it out with the world. That's what he's saying. You've allowed discrimination. You've allowed fighting. You've allowed quarrelsomeness, all of these things to infiltrate your life and to infiltrate the church community and your new lover. You have a new lover and his name is not Jesus anymore. His name is the world. The world becomes our lover when we start to value what it values, when we start to behave in the way that the world does. And I think probably the highest embarrassment for the church is that actually there's no difference between the church and the world. That is probably, it must be the highest embarrassment for the church. I said to you last week, I heard a story of a, of a church leader running away with his, his uh, secretary. Again, another one. It's just like, what, what is different between the church and the world? He says they are unfaithful for three reasons. They were the bride of Christ. 
but they were being unfaithful. In other words, they were double-minded. Remember, James also uses that illustration of being double-minded Christians, half, half doing this, half doing that, not sure of this, not sure of that, kind of in the world, not kind of, just kind of stepping between the two, double-minded. Double-minded Christians are not useful for the kingdom. And he says they're being governed, really, by worldly wisdom. Remember, he described worldly wisdom. He said, this is what worldly wisdom looks like. It's full of these things. But you put off those things, and you embrace wisdom from heaven, which is pure, peaceable, noble, kind. That's what he's encouraged us to do already. And you see, when James uses this word friendship with the world, he uses the Greek word philia. Now, remember, we talked about three of the Greek words. There's eros, which is sexual love. There's philia, which talks about love for family. The Greeks are good at philia. It's all about the family, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. And what he's saying is, this love that is reserved for family, for God's family, you are giving that same love to the world. And the love that you should reserve for God's family is exclusively for God's family, not for the world. And it's interesting, the word, the verb from philia means to kiss. Means to kiss. They were kissing the world, these Christians. It's a picture of great intimacy, isn't it? It's always a dead giveaway in the movies, isn't it? The, the, one, the one person says, my heart belongs to you, and, I, and I, I want you as my own. And then they cut to a shot where that same person is kissing somebody else, and you know it's a giveaway. What he has said is not true. What he is living, his heart is somewhere else. And that's exactly what James is saying. These, these Christians were kissing the world, and still wanted to be called friends of God, like Abraham was. And James is just simply saying, that is just not possible. If you love someone, but kiss somebody else, your heart is exposed. And so, he's warning them of their danger. He's saying, my friends, my dear friends, these things that you're already experiencing, this sense of frustration, this enmity, this kind of quarrelsomeness, it shows that you already are like an enemy of God because God is resisting you. Because <laughs> God resists the proud, the arrogant, but He gives more grace to the humble. And so James is warning them. He's saying this, your unanswered prayers, your restlessness, your lack of success, even I would say sometimes in business, I, can, I could draw that from this portion as well. All these things are because God is wanting your heart back. The gospel always woos our hearts. It's, it's always calling us back to an intimacy with Jesus, a primary relationship with Him. And we get so caught up in the external things. And focus on the external things. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added. Amen? Okay, I trust you are going to be encouraged this morning because it really is an incredibly encouraging portion. And like so much of Scripture, Scripture always works in two ways. It says what's wrong and then it answers itself in the next sentence with the answer. It's beautiful. I love that about Scripture. You read one portion, you think, oh God, I'm in trouble. And then you read the next verse, and you just go, yes! Thank you! And it's like that this morning. So it's, at the moment, it's just a little bit like this, but we're coming to the yes in a short while, okay? So I want to say to you, when he says you are enemies of God, he is not talking about losing your salvation, can I just clarify that once again? Colossians 1.20 reminds us, it says, Through Him, through Jesus, 
He has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth, on heaven, making peace by blood on the cross. We have peace with God once and for all because of Jesus. Amen? Okay? Romans 5.10 For while we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. So much now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We are no longer enemies of God. So why does James use this word enemy? Well, there is something that can fluctuate in our relationship with God. It's not Him and what He has done. It is us and what we have done. (laughs) So it's not that we we don't lose our salvation. I can put it like this. We who are AD children sometimes behave like BC children. Yes, you get it? We are, after, we, we are children that are saved by the blood, but sometimes we can behave like children that are not saved by the blood. We don't lose our salvation, but our behavior needs to fall in line with what God has already done for us. And so, let me get back to the marriage illustration. A marriage can be, appear to be intact, it can be legal, it can be illegally in place, but one partner can be having an affair. And that's what James, the illustration that James is using. Doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. Doesn't mean that God hasn't saved us and sanctified us. It means sometimes our behavior is out of line with what He's already done. You with me? And so He uses this picture. He says, Don't kiss the world. Friendship with God. Kissing the world makes you an enemy of God. And if that betrays an unfaithfulness in our hearts. And so I want to say, friends, God wants us to be different. Yes. He does want us to be different. You know, I just thought of this as an illustration. You know, the world likes to name drop, doesn't it? The world likes to name drop. Let's let you know who the people have been with, and I met this person, and I met that person. Why do people name drop? It's to show that they're a little bit better than you. It's to show that they're a little bit more connected than you are, that they know someone who's got profile. You know, And James is saying, I don't want you to be like that. Don't be name droppers. Don't fight like everybody else fights in the world. Don't argue and be bitter. Don't be unforgiving. Don't hold on to that bitter root that Pauline prophesied. Don't hold on to that. That will gnaw away at you for the rest of the life. And you know the only one who destroys, it's you. Have you been harmed in the church? I'm sure you have. Have you been hurt in the church? I am sure you have. You know why I say that with conviction and absolute assurance? Because I have been hurt in the church. I know what it feels like to be hurt in the church. But lay it aside. Choose to say no. That thing is not going to take to control my destiny. No, absolutely not. My destiny is in Jesus. His plans for me are good. I'll choose to leave that behind. And you know what's the amazing thing? And I can honestly say, the more I've learned to do that, the freer I have felt. I feel free, completely free. Why? Because I'm learning to say no. I'm learning to say no. I won't. I choose not to embrace that anymore. Choose not to let the, to, to have a dig in me. No, no more. It's gone. Dealt with. It's incredibly free. And I want to say this: God wants us to be different, and there are no exceptions in the kingdom. And over and over again in this book of James. James ruthlessly pummels away that thing and says there are no exceptions in the kingdom of God to these things. None of us have the luxury of saying, I am the exception to the rule. 
I am the exception. All those things apply to every other Christian, but not to me. And you know how we do that? We fool ourselves. We actually buy into our own lies about ourselves. And you see, this is the reality. The devil wants you to say, it applies to everyone else. It doesn't apply to me. You see, James is saying that this world is a territory that is under the judgment of God. Yeah? This is not... There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. This world is tainted by sin. It's under God's judgment. And we think we can trespass and kind of still be a part of it, and it's still it's okay. Well, James is reminding us it doesn't work like that. Uh, this, this, this week I had the privilege of going up to Staffordshire for two days just to meet with some guys, some church leaders, pray with them. It was like a kind of retreat. And uh, I don't know if you know, there's the, uh, the National Arboretum, which is like, um, it's, it's this plan to link two ancient forests together, and they've planted a million trees. It's a lot of trees. So they're trying to link this whole area. And part of that is like a memorial to everyone that has served in the armed forces and uh, in the police and ambulance service, whatever. and they have all these groves of trees that are dedicated to different things. It's a fascinating place. And I, I had some couple of hours, and I went walking one afternoon and just praying, and, and, and I came to this long section that was fenced off and it said quicksand, quicksand. And I thought, that's interesting. Didn't think there was quicksand in England. Now, I would be a fool if I said, I'm a Christian. I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. That sign, it doesn't apply to me. I'm just going to walk in there and God is going to save me. Would that be foolish or wouldn't it be foolish? Of course, it would be incredibly foolish. I would die. And someone would have to come rescue me and probably get into trouble themselves. Why do we think that we can flirt and kiss with the world and it's not going to damage us? And we do it in three ways. We say, I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough. No one else can handle this thing, but you know, I'm strong enough to handle this thing. I don't think there's anyone who's strong enough to handle the world. I've seen it over and over again. People get into relationships, they get into friendships, and they say, and um, it's under control, don't worry about me, it's under control. And what happens over a period of time? They are gone. The devil has them. They're not, none of us are strong enough. There but for the grace of God go I. Secondly, we pretend the world is, is less harmful than it really is. We say things like this, it isn't that bad. Everyone struggles with these things. Uh, it, uh, you know, the world's not that bad. It's, you can just compromise a little bit. It's, it's not that bad. It's not, you know. My friends, it shows we are really naive in our understanding of what sin is and the damage that sin does to us and to everyone that we love. And then, thirdly, we think that God sees true spirituality in the way that we do. Like I said to you a couple of weeks ago, often backslidden Christians surround themselves with other backslidden Christians, and then they say, see, all Christians are like this. <laughs> it's a lie. <laughs> it's just backslidden Christians that get together. You hear what I'm saying? No, no, no not all Christians. Most Christians that love Jesus are with these people. <laughs> They're with these people worshiping, his people, worshiping Him, loving each other, let me remind you of what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What is partnership? Listen to the words that he uses. What is partnership 
What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship, friendship, has light God with darkness? What has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with the temple of idols? He puts it like that. He uses all these pictures. And then he says, God says, I will make my dwelling amongst them. We are the temple of the living God. I will make my temple amongst them and walk amongst them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, I will wel- and then I will welcome you. I will be your father, and you will be my son and daughter, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved friends, Let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul didn't see it like we like to see it. He saw it in a radical way. So what am I saying? Am I talking about living in a modern monastery? Am I saying we must must withdraw ourselves from the world? No, 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 no. That's a distorted view of what it means to be godly. We are in the world. We are not of the world. I'm not talking about living in a monastery. I'm not talking about retreating from life. I'm not talking about retreating from politics or having impact through our careers in the, in the arts or, or just getting into some kind of holy little huddle. I hate religious little holy huddles that get together and they kind of shield themselves from all that's kind of evil in the world. That's not what the... We're called to preach the gospel into a lost and a broken world. We are called to be salt and light. Please hear me this morning. I'm not talking about some kind of spiritual monastery where we kind of cut ourselves from everyone who's not saved and we behave like, like monks. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is what James is saying. He's saying let's put to death worldliness in us. In our lives. And so can I try and illustrate it a little bit? And I want to say this to you as God as I was praying this morning. I said, God, help me communicate this well. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone. You hear that? But this is what worldly Christianity looks like. Worldly Christians seek the approval of people more than anything else. A worldly Christian is happy to worship with God's people, but not to be in the family. <laughs> not to be in the community. You know why? Because he's secretly embarrassed by God's family. Secretly embarrassed by God's family. They're not kind of cool enough, not fashionable enough. You know, they're such, they're kind of quaint sort of people, Christians, but they're not cool. So I'll worship with them, but I don't want to be part of the family. <laughs> Worldly Christians love the intellectual view of the world, and they want that more than they want fellowship with God. And I can understand that, because sometimes I've found, I found over the years, Christians can be dull. Why do I say that? Because sometimes, I don't know why, but Christians can be uninformed about things. I don't know why it is, but sometimes they don't think, Christians don't like to think about difficult things. They don't like to think about issues in the world that cause them discomfort anyway, so it's like we just brush it under the carpet, and so they don't have an opinion. You think that, I don't think that's what the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to think clearly and deeply about the world in which we live so we can make a difference. We need to have an opinion. We do need to have an opinion about global warming. (laughs) It's not the thing. You hear what I'm saying? But 
Having said that, we can never so want the approval of men and the, and the way that the world does things that we stop desiring the presence of God. More than anything else, we must be desiring the presence of God. The highest goal of our hearts. Secondly, the worldly Christian so enjoys his earthly pleasures and appetites that he, he values his own pleasure more than he does the presence of God. What do I mean by that? Well, a worldly Christian likes to gaze at the world. He likes to flirt with the world. Likes to give it a kiss on each cheek. You know, like the French do? So nice to see you. That's how worldly Christians are. Got this kind of standoff with the world. Kind of kiss it and embrace it to a certain extent. Like to go close to the edge. So a worldly Christian likes to hang out with people that have his appetites, and perhaps he doesn't indulge them as much as his friends do, but he certainly likes to hang out with those that do indulge their appetites. And secondly, he doesn't want to be seen as like a religious fanatic. So he makes sure that he hangs out with people that are not religious fanatics. And thirdly, a worldly Christian has persuaded himself that the effort of living unselfishly, living for other people, and pursuing a godly life is just too much bother. See, this, this kind of Christian really would want to see God move, really would want to see God do something extraordinary in his church, but because he's never seen it in his own life, or perhaps in the churches that he's been part of, he convinces himself that it will never happen, and he simply says, actually, no, it's too hard, it's too much bother, it's too much sacrifice, let someone else do it. And you know, Paul described that kind of Christian in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. He said, these people sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play. He's saying, they did that, they did that, the, the church in Corinth, because God wasn't really going to do anything anyway, and so the best thing to do was just to hang out with each other and have fun and have a good time. <laughs> and so James is saying to these friends of his, he's saying, if you like that, you've given God reason to treat you as an enemy. You've given God reason to resist you. You've given God reason to say, actually, I am going to resist you, because actually you don't value what I value. And this is what I value, friendship. I want you to kiss me. Psalm 2 says, draw near and kiss the sun. I know for some of the guys, maybe these images are a little bit kind of, uh, hey, guys, I love kissing my wife. It's the most delightful thing. Wonderful thing. I want to encourage you to give hours at learning to kiss your wife properly. I'm serious. Give some good time. And God encourages it in the same way. And he says, I want to kiss you like that. I don't want you to kiss the world like that. And you see... Here's the good news. <laughs> That's all the bad news. Okay, now I've come to the good news part. Here's the good news part. God is jealous for you. God wants your heart. Jesus wants you. He wants you to have the highest affection in your heart for Him. He loves you. And so He says this. I mean, uh, do you think that it's for nothing that the Scripture says, the Spirit which God made to live in us jealously longs for us? The Spirit of God inside of you, God has put the Spirit of God inside of you so that you can long for Him. I said last week, Augustine, you have made us for yourself, God says. You have made us for yourself and our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest in you. 
It's the same thing. And maybe we think, you know, should God be jealous? What does that mean? Is it a good thing that the Scripture says God is jealous? Well, I want to say when we proper think about jealousy, when we think about it properly, it's the primary and most necessary ingredient in true love. Think about it. True love involves jealousy. Jealousy is a ceaseless longing for the good of the other person and a longing that the good that you, the love that you're pouring out for that person will be reciprocated and will come back to you. That's what jealousy is. That's a, that's a definition of it. It's an intense, it's personal, it's the love of God that's been given to us. And in that way, God is jealous over us. Purely jealous for the affection of our hearts to come back to Him. And so when James, James talks about um, jealousy here, he's not referring to any particular scripture. It's rather a summary of, of some of the themes of the Old Testament would teach that God is jealous for our hearts and He hates unfaithfulness. So Exodus 20, Psalm 91, Isaiah 43... They all speak of God's intense desire and love for His people, that He wants them to be called out and be separate. And then also Ephesians 1, verse 4. Uh, I want to remind you of it again. It says, Even as He chose us in Him. Why did He chose us in Him? Choose us in Him before the foundations of the world? It says, So that we might be predestined as His adopted sons. That's why He loves us. And so James is simply trying to encourage his friends. He's saying, Guys, God wants your hearts. And if there's some sense of things are, un, are just needling away at your life, it's because God is trying to get your attention and He's trying to encourage you. And he's, there might be some pain right now, but it's because He's trying to get your attention. And we don't like that because it, it challenges us. But it's also incredibly encouraging at the same time because it means the Holy Spirit is at work in us. The Holy Spirit is intensely at work in our lives, wooing our hearts back to Him. Why? Because he wants a love relationship with us and no one else. And so, I love the scripture. It always tells us what is wrong, but then it tells us what to do. Isn't it beautiful about the scripture? And so now he tells us what to do. James tells us what to do. He says, God gives more grace. There's the answer. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. And resist the devil and he will flee from you. There, you know, God, we've said this over and over, God is a God of grace. We never saved ourselves. He saved us. And since he saved us, he also works in our lives by grace. He pours out his grace upon us where sin once abounded, now grace abounds even more. I hope these things are real in your heart, in your life, in your mind, that you rest in these things. And what James is saying, it's the graciousness of God that is at work in his friends' lives. He's bringing an assurance to them. He's saying, guys, I want you to understand that God hasn't given up on you. You might be, feel like you're far and you're wandering in the desert. Perhaps you are far and wandering in the desert, but God hasn't given up on you. He's still working in your life. He's still calling you. He's still wooing you. He's still saying, I want you to come back to me. He gives more grace. Does He give grace, more grace to everyone? What does this Scripture say? He wants to save everyone, but if we want to live in an ongoing state of God's grace being poured out on our lives, what is the key? What is the, our reciprocation? Be humble. Draw close. In chapter, in the, we'll look at this next week, but from verse 7 to 10, there are 10 things 
that James says are our response. And he concludes that by saying, this is the evidence of grace in our lives. We'll look at that next week. Our responsibility is to humble ourselves. To say, God, I can't do it on my own. You know, it's, it's true that even while we are still selfish, even while we are self-seeking, the Holy Spirit is still living in us. Doesn't that, don't you find that amazing? When we are saved, we receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he's, from that moment on, He's working in us. And we still are sinful and uh, being transformed. And we're still selfish and we still... All those things, but God has started working in us. So that what is legally true might become true in how we live. And so... The Holy Spirit never promises us, Jesus never promises us that our sanctification is going to be instant and easy, just like that. And it's going to be effortless. No, it's not going to be effortless. There are some things that God requires of us to do. And that is to humble ourselves, not to be proud, to seek Him with all of our hearts. And then He says, in that obedience, I will pour out my grace bountifully upon you. Not saving grace, enabling grace more and more and more and more. And there's this virtuous virtuous cycle in our lives. As we obey Him, as we humble ourselves to Him, as we resist being proud, He says, my son, have some more grace. There it is. If we resist, if we are proud and arrogant, my son, I'm going to take some of that away and you're going to have some problems to deal with. It's true, my friends. And so the benefits of grace, more and more grace, are to be enjoyed by us as we journey with God on a road of obedience and more obedience. Then we experience grace and more grace. In the same breath, God says, here's my grace to receive. And in the same breath, He says, here is what I want you to obey. It's part of the same package, one and the other. And it's linked in this portion by these therefores. I remember, I'm not sure when I heard it the first time, but preachers always say, whenever you see a therefore in the Scripture, ask what it's there for. All right? And here is the link. Here's why it's there. He's making a vital connection between us experiencing the fullness of grace in our lives and the life of obedience that God calls us to with these two therefores. He says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It's quite clear, those that enjoy this kind of abundant grace are those that are humble, those that are not proud. And at the end of of verse 10 of this chapter, it says, this is walking humbly with our God. He actually illustrates it perfectly, spells it out. He says, these things show that you are walking humbly with your God. And the promise of that, isn't it amazing, that God says if we live like that, He lifts us up. And so I love the scripture. Not only tells us what is true, but it also shows us how to respond to what is true. And the truth is, there is super abundant, more than enough grace, a supply to every one of us that is available. Our response to that super abundant, ever flowing river of grace is that we obediently walk with our God, that we humbly walk with our God, that without pride, without arrogance, without selfishness, we walk with our God, and His promise is, He will pour out more on us. So guys, I want us to respond, and, and this, is the, this is the trick that, I, it's not the trick, but this is the kind of, 
It's the kind of thing of every preacher, I suppose. I don't think introversion is a very good thing in our lives. We can get all introverted. Because you know when we get introverted, it robs us of joy. It robs us of of, uh, what God wants to do. But we do need to take a healthy look and say, okay, God, I see some things there that need to change, and I'm sorry. Sincerely, I'm sorry. And so I want to ask you, maybe there's some things that, as I've been preaching, you know are worldly things in your life. And I've had to say over this last week as I've prepared this and as I've been away, there are some things I had to say, God, I'm really sorry for that. I see that it's me kissing the world and and I made a compromise in my life and I'm so sorry. Help me. I don't point a finger at any one of you. You know why? Because this stuff is going into my, my own heart as well. And God is using it to change me. Maybe you know that you've been flirting with the world. I want to encourage you this morning, let the kindness of God change you. Let the kindness of God change you. Let the grace of God change you. Just say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. You know, in our marriage, we, we've, um, I, I'm, I've always found it hard to say sorry. I don't know if it's a guy thing or if it's just an Anthony thing, but I've always found it hard to say sorry. You know what I'm learning? The quicker you say sorry, the quicker the release comes. It's taken 20 years. I'm a bit... Isn't it true? You know what I'm talking about? You've had an argument, and you're in the same bed, but there's like a, there's like a canyon between you. Have you ever had that in your marriages before? No, no one. Just me and... Okay, it's fine. It's okay. You want to close the canyon instantly. Say sorry. <laughs> it's gone. And yet we hold out, isn't it? Because we are all proud. We're so proud, all of us, and we want our way... Maybe you've been kissing the world. You know you've been kissing the world. Do you have a friendship with the world that should be reserved? Do you have that intimacy with the world that should only be reserved for God's family? Are you secretly embarrassed by God's people? (laughs) It's nice to hang out on a Sunday, but geez, those guys, I don't want them in my home. They're so embarrassing. I want to ask you, let the kindness of God change you this morning. Let the grace of God change you. Amen?